is no denying that many of us are practically immersed in tech 24-7, especially on our smartphones. I'm Leo Allen, and on this episode of Voluntary Input, Rob Krejcik offers his human's first perspective for us to take control of tech as opposed to letting tech take control of us. He talks about having tech mindfulness, as well as how he helps companies adopt a four-day work week. Never forced, never coursed. Open discussions about things in life that matter to you most. From tech to TV, movies, and gaming, and everything in between. Visit voluntaryinput.com to subscribe, contact us, and find out how you can support the show. Catch new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Voluntary Input. Rob, thank you for thank you so much for coming on tonight. You got me all choked up. I don't know why. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, thanks so much. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Leo. I'm really grateful for for being here today. Yeah, my name is Rob Kretchak. I'm the CEO of Humans First, and the mission of our company is to help humanity understand how technology impacts mental health, relationships, and productivity at work. And um, I am a consultant to help and guide other companies toward a four-day work week. Which is fascinating and exciting to think about, but we'll get back to that later. <laughs> so first of all, we'll start with something that I keep seeing when I look you up and you know your profiles, tech mindfulness. What exactly is that? Yeah, I think of technology mindfulness as using technology in a way that serves you instead of you being enslaved to it. What I'm seeing is happening in the world is not all technology is good anymore. You know, when technology first came out in the 80s and, you know, we first had cell phones, I mean, that was an incredible leap forward being able to use a cell phone when you didn't have one. But now, you know, everyone has a cell phone. They're super cheap. They're, you know, and and there's just so many ways that technology is not serving humanity. And I I'm, I'm really excited to bring some awareness to the 4.2 billion people who are connected to the Internet. Um, so that they can understand how they could maybe use technology to serve them better. And you mentioned that the the 80s, um, not to age you, but I'll age myself every time. <laughs> In the 80s, that's how I got started. Um, that was back when pretty much no one even knew what a computer was. I personally, I was diving into programming because, you know, I was, I was right. a young, I was a kid basically. And it sparked my interest. And then I just went in, you know, head first. Um, so it's interesting. It, it always interests me as well as you that um, how we've evolved, like the way people are always on their phones and always in front of computers. And I think back sometimes I've even joked about, should we had have let this happen? You know, mm. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you say that, Leo. And just to be clear with the listeners, I always describe myself as I'm not anti-technology. I'm pro-humanity because I'm I'm exactly like you. I'm a nerd. I love technology. I built my first computer in middle school, but I've also seen some negative effects from technology as well. In high school, I was addicted to video games. And it, this was in the mid 90s before most people even had a cell phone. Right. At other points in my life, I was also addicted to Facebook and addicted to email. And so I've seen personally how three very different but very powerful technologies, you know, kind of took my attention and time 
and not in a good way. And so I'm, I, this is a very personal mission for me. And I would, you know, would love to help the rest of humanity not fall prey to these, uh, you know, to, to these technologies in a way that's, that's negative for them. And so I'm, I'm just really excited about, you know, helping people with that. And now a slightly personal question. Do you have children? Uh, not yet, but I actually, um, not, not yet, not yet. Okay, because, and the reason why I ask that is because, you know, in the past couple of years with all the COVID lockdowns and whatnot, we've seen where we kind of became more dependent on technology. And, you know, a person like me, I kind of celebrated it because my kids were like, you know, I have older kids, I have three of them, and uh, they they transitioned really well. You know, it was no big deal for them because the schools already use like Chromebooks and whatnot, and just working from home and leaning on that but you know a lot of people have pointed out some of the negative effects of that or are there things that you've seen that concern you about you know how we went into the lockdown and we had to depend more on technology yeah i mean this you know that's that's why i feel good about the timing for me launching humans first is you know there and, and i understand why we needed to use technology more during covid and i don't you know i can't in envision a way where we could have done that differently, to be honest. But what I'm concerned about going forward is that people will forget how things used to be and that they will do certain things out of convenience instead of out of connection. So here's an example. Let's say, you know, you used to meet with your your good friend once a week for coffee in person at a local coffee shop right before COVID. And during COVID, obviously, you couldn't do that, that, you know, the coffee shop was probably closed. Well, now you might think, and, you know, this isn't particular to you, it could be anybody, right? You're just, I'm just using it, using it as an example. But right. now you might think to yourself, you know what, it was kind of inconvenient to go to that coffee shop once a week and see my friend, even though I like seeing them, maybe we should just do a Zoom call every other week. And then we'd meet in person in every other week. And, you know, the trade-off is, is it more convenient to do the Zoom call? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But what humanity isn't understanding is that there are a ton of different things that happen to us both psychologically and physiologically that actually have like our brain chemicals are and the way that we respond to people in person is very different than when we use a screen. And I think you know, you're, we're not seeing the effects of these things in short periods of time because they're not obvious. But over long periods of time, I think we are seeing the effects, but people just aren't putting the, the they're not, they're not connecting the dots. They're not thinking to themselves, oh, I'm on Zoom for eight hours a day. That's the reason why I'm tired or feel crappy or exhausted at the end of every day. But it, it could very well be the reason. So um, there's a lot of implications about what you just said and how we use technology during COVID that I, I hope that we're going to, you know, be a, more aware of as we go forward. And I love that you said that because I've always felt the same way. And there used to be this law in technology and I almost, it seems like I never hear anyone say it. And sometimes I wonder, did I really hear this or was it some sort of fever dream? But there used to be this number one rule that technology is never meant to replace human life. Mm. It is only meant to enhance human life. And I feel I like that. we've lost that. And especially with, well, we'll talk more on this too later, social media. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad that you brought this up, Leo. And again, this is literally, this is why the name of my company is Humans First. So here's what's happening to, at least to people in the United States. In America now, the average person uses screens and media 12 hours and 21 minutes per day on average. And, or let me put it to you another way. We are spending three quarters of our waking life in front of screens and media. Humans aren't first in our world anymore. Screens and technology are just based on that statistic. But if you think about what, how did human, you know, how did humans exist 50,000 years ago? Well, what happened back then was we existed in small tribes of, let's say like 20 to 30 people. And we spent 90% of our waking hours with other humans. So basically that, that, uh, you know, equation is almost completely flipped. Instead of being almost all spending all of our time with humans, we now spend it almost all with technology. And that's why I've named the company Humans First as a reminder that we, the, the, the greatest happiness and joy and meaning in our life comes from connecting with other people, not with using technology. We were meant to be in community with one another is the bottom yeah. line. And I, I don't know if you feel this way. I often feel, at least here in the United States, a lot of that is because Americans, we have this problem with convenience and laziness. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Fast food was born out of convenience and laziness. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to get it quick. I don't want to be the one to do it. And I want it to be convenient. Mm -hmm. And technology is being consumed in the same manner like you said, oh, I could go to the coffee shop, but it's so much easier to just sit here and talk to you on a Zoom call. There were people doing, what was it, wine Zoom wine parties? Mm. <laughs> it cracked uh -huh. me up. So let's go, let's go on into the social media thing. What, um, what are your feelings about social media in general? <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I, I would like that the listeners have an open mind when you know, when hearing this, because I do think it can be a little jarring, but I truly believe that social media is the cigarette of the 21st century. I think in, in 10 years from now, we're going to be, as a society, we're going to be saying to ourselves, what in the hell were we thinking giving these 12-year-old kids this insanely addictive and very dangerous tool that completely screws up their mental health and self-image and their ability to communicate and all these other things? I think in, in 10 years, we're, we're, we're going to be saying that to ourselves, but it's just hard to see right now. Just like at one point, over 50% of the population and 50% of doctors smoke cigarettes. They used to smoke in the hospital. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> like, and like, if you think about that today, that's just, it's mind blowingly crazy thought, but back then over 50% of people did it. And so that's kind of why I make this analogy to cigarette smoking. And, you know, I, and to be clear, you can use, you can use social media in a way that is positive, that allows you to connect with people that allows you to, you know, grow your business. If you have a business, totally agree that there's all very good ways to use it. But the problem is, it's so addictive and it's engineered to be that way by tens of thousands of people plus AI and supercomputers. How on earth is your one single brain going to resist the efforts of those ten th tens of thousands of engineers and supercomputers? The answer is you're not. And so it's a losing battle. If you think that you're going to just try to, you know, try to use it less, it doesn't work that way unless you have like the most insane willpower that I've ever seen. And let's not forget, it's not just kids. There's a lot of adults too. There that are addicted to it. And there are therapies to get people off of social media. We are already seeing it, uh, social media rehab. 
I, I truly believe that social media is the most potentially destructive and addictive technology that we own. I think the second one is email, but social media is worse because of the obvious social element of it. And the fact that humans are, we're meant, we're hardwired to pay attention to other people because it's a survival mechanism. Right. You know, 50,000 years ago, if you were cavemen and cave women and you were alone, the likelihood that you would survive as a lone caveman or cave woman was very low. But if you had your tribe with you, the likelihood that you can survive is way higher. And so we, that's why we pay attention to other people and want to connect with them among other reasons. But that's one of the main ones is it is a hardwired survival instinct. And so even if you want to think that you don't like paying attention to people, you really do on a deep level because it's a, it's hardwired into us. Because you're human like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. I also, I don't know if you agree with this too. I find, and it may just be me because, you know, sometimes it's hard to say it's this way for everyone because, you know, I'm only thinking from my perspective, but sometimes yeah. I think it's harder for people who don't remember the time when social media didn't exist. I remember when social media didn't exist. So for me, it's like, it really isn't that important to me. I can be there or not. I tend to only use social media mostly for this podcast. I have personal accounts that people never see me, especially anymore. And then I was like you, you know, when Facebook first came out, yeah, I was all over it. It was, it was great. Uh, family, mm-hmm. old friends. But after a while, I have this thing where I start getting bored with stuff too. <laughs> so I start getting bored with it. So I'm there less and less. But yeah. a, a lot of times I do believe that it's harder for people who don't remember when it didn't exist because people got to remember we're going on a second generation of people who don't remember when social media didn't exist. I call it the refrigerator effect. There was a generation before us, my parents' generation, who can remember before refrigerators existed. Mm. For Mm. us, they've always been here. We have generations of people for whom social media has always been here. Yeah, that's a great point, Leo. And I, 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 it's, it's really interesting, right? Because for you and I, who uh, who did not have social media when we were young, it is hard to imagine what it what it would be like or what it could have been like then, just because we didn't really have it. But what's interesting and what I think is important for listeners to understand is this: the so if you and again, let's let's talk about the cigarette analogy. Ninety percent of long term smokers started smoking before the age of eighteen. Why is that? It's because the prefrontal cortex in your brain, the part that helps with executive function, decision-making, rash, rational logic, you know, logic, that isn't fully developed in males until the age of 28 and females by the age of 24. And it's very, you know, immature or not developed in your teens. And so the strategy of these tech companies, especially Facebook and Instagram is, we want to get these people using this as super addictive technology as early as possible so that they have the highest likelihood of being addicted and using it into adulthood. And then there we have them for life, right? Like that's what the cigarette manufacturers wanted is you to be a smoker for life. And so Mark, there was evidence that came out when this Facebook whistleblower um, revealed this stuff last October, where Mark Zuckerberg wanted to make an Instagram for kids oh, yeah. and was and was studying targeting kids as young as nine years old, which I think is a completely immoral and disgusting, you know, tactic to grow his company. And I, I, I and so 
I think if listeners and parents especially realize that that is the strategy of these social media companies is to get your kid addicted to something like cigarettes as early as possible and so that they, you know, rely on it and depend on it, you know, maybe they'll have a little bit of different awareness and how dangerous the technology is or how, you know, how they're being manipulated and their kids are being manipulated and, you know, maybe change their behavior a little bit. And sometimes I don't think it's malicious, you know, purposefully malicious. I think people like Zuckerberg, as brilliant as people can be, we can also sometimes be idiots. It's that whole, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, especially, you know, people with programming and tech mind. Sometimes we think, Ooh, cool, cool. I can do this. I can do this. Well, that doesn't mean you should do it. You know? So his, uh, consolation was messenger for kids, but that's another conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I, um, the, the, the whole reason why I got involved with technology mindfulness, I, I can just tell you a quick story and it might illustrate this this point, right? Is about uh, about four years ago, I was um, I'd owned a cell phone repair store and I was at the front desk and I was checking people in like I normally did. You know, I'd done that thousands of times. And this middle aged woman came in with her son and she's literally sh physically shoving him up to the front desk. And she says to the to son, hey, Tyler, you need to tell this man what you did to your phone because the kid had broken his phone. And the kid looks at me and he could barely stammer out a sentence. He, he couldn't look me in the eye and he had very poor body posture. And, you know, my heart went out to him because that reminded me of me when I was in high school. I had extremely crippling acne and really low self-esteem and self-worth. And it was really difficult for me to connect with people. And so you know, I looked, I looked at the kid and I, you know, I, I did my best to help him out and we ended up fixing his phone and everything went fine with the transaction. But then I started paying attention. And a couple of weeks later, a similar scenario happened with a different woman. A different woman came in with her, their child and the child could barely communicate, even though they were, you know, in their probably mid teens age. And then I had this aha moment. I said to myself, oh, maybe it's because of how much they're using technology and the fact that they're addicted to it that is the cause of why these kids are not able to communicate and they have low self-esteem. And so I started paying more attention. This scenario kept happening over and over. And then I started, I read the book iGen by Gene Twenge. And it basically is a generational study of all the ways that generations have changed from 1970 to the present. And when you look at that book and you look at all the graphs and you say, oh my God, Things were relatively stable for most generations until 2011, and then the whole world changed for them. Well, what happened that year? That was the year that smartphones reached 50% penetration in the United States, and it was also the year that Facebook bought Instagram. And so I, it's, not a, it's not a coincidence. I'm very convinced it's not a coincidence that those two things correlate and that the, the rates of... Uh, mental health issues that especially among teens have skyrocketed since then. I ve I'm very confident it's directly due to social media and a lot of other technologies. It is something I've tried to hammer home to kids, especially my own. Texting is not communicating. It's, yes. It's an augmentation of communication, but that is not communicating. Rob, <laughs> I literally had to teach my sons, my daughter, not so much how to talk on the phone. This blew my mind. They had no, oh, they yeah. didn't even have an idea of how to hold the phone. 
<laughs> I, had, I don't mean to. I, oh, I mean, no, it's, it's funny. I had to change that. I'm like, no, you're learning how to talk on the phone. Yeah. And that's where we are. Kids do. They don't. And it's 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 amazing to me. You don't know how to talk on the phone. You know what? I did see a statistic a while back and I, I wish I remember exactly what it was. But over half of Gen Z is afraid, actually afraid to talk on the phone. Like They don't know how. Right, right. They will. They would not do it. They would not do it. Even, even if they, like, the study was do, doing something like they could. They would basically had something to gain and nothing to lose, right? Mm-hmm. Just to make a phone call and talk to people, and they wouldn't do it. But the majority of the people wouldn't do it. It's crazy for Gen Z. For Gen Z, it, it is. It, it, it's weird for us. I'm like, wait, how do you not know? <laughs> when the first time I saw it, I mean, my oldest one, the first time he got a phone call, he didn't even know how to hold it up to his ear. And this, you know, you could say that's my responsibility. And of course it is. Why didn't I know up until that point? Because I didn't think about it. I mean, who doesn't know? Because that was one of the moments, and this was years ago. He's older now. He knows how to do it. But that was one of the moments I realized what you just pointed out. They don't know because it's not something that they're doing. They're not actively talking to their friends on the phone. They're texting. And they, they, and pretty much a large portion of the population tend to forget that that little computer in your pocket is a telephone. Mm. <laughs> no one talks on the phone anymore. <laughs> I mean, Leo, you're you're speaking to the choir man. And I, I have a quick story that I think really illustrates you know this point, but I'll also explain kind of the psychology behind it. So uh, during COVID, um, <clears throat> I, excuse me, I spoke with my grandma a bunch on the phone. You know, I'd call her over a couple months, just check on her. She's in her mid eighties. You know, I just wanted to see how she was doing, but I couldn't see her because we weren't vaccinated. And the last thing I wanted to do was travel over there and then give her COVID. I would have felt terrible. And so after we both got vaccinated, I went and saw her. And the very first thing she said to me was, come here, Rob, and give me a hug. And it's interesting, right, that, you know, even though I had spoken with her a bunch over the last couple of years, she wanted physical contact. She wanted a hug, which humans perceive very differently, even chemically in our brain, than other types of communication. And so here's what happens when you have warm human touch with other people or you're in person with them. The amount of serotonin and oxytocin that are released in our brain is very high compared to other methods of communication like phone calls or text messages. The less personal the method of communication, the less oxytocin and serotonin is released. And you might think, okay, well, that's not a big deal. But here's why it's a big deal, especially oxytocin. When we have oxytocin released in our body and it's released in large amounts, this is the uh, chemical that makes us feel loved and cared for and, and gives us a perception of social support. That perception of social support is one of the main ways that humans deal with stress. And so when we don't feel supported, we also have a very poor ability to deal with stress. And then everything else in our life becomes much more problematic because it's, we perceive it to be a much bigger deal than it really is. We were meant to be together. I mean, there's so many mm. cliches that we could throw out right now. No man is an island. Um, mm. We're meant to be in community, you know, community first. Like I said, there's because it's true. It is so true. And I, you know, and like I say, as a technology lover, sometimes it pains me to look at it. And I think, man, maybe this shouldn't have been unleashed onto <laughs> the general population as much as we all love the gadgets and the convenience it's we got to be mindful that for a large portion of the population it 
it's too much. It, it, it can be oversaturating. And we have to figure out a way to draw people back off of it. And it sounds like you know how to help with that. But I did want to ask you about, you mentioned how technology can make us less productive. Can you explain that a little bit? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, you know, the, what, here's what I'm observing with, and this is happening to, to literally almost every person across the country and almost every, every company that you, you know, where you use a computer a lot and people don't realize this is happening. And, you know, as a way of background for, I, I'm like a, I'm like a productivity nerd too, right? I love to, I love to, you know, try to optimize things and like find the best way to do things. You know, the four hour work week, that was my Bible when that first came out. I, you know, I, and so I, Four years ago, I thought that I was super productive. I thought that I had all this stuff figured out and that I was always getting a lot done. But there was, you know, some days where I would be like, I would feel super busy. Like I would be checking my email and doing all these things. But at the end of the day, if I wrote down a list of the things that I'd accomplished, <laughs> it would have been ridiculously short. And I'm there and I, that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I was like, well, what, what the heck is going on? <laughs> I, how can I feel so busy yet be getting such little actual work done? And so that also kind of launched me into trying, like being my own experiment and trying hundreds, many, many hundreds of different experiments over the last four years with different stuff, different ways to work, different ways to manage my calendar, different ways to use my phone, all these different things. And, and basically the result of hundreds of those experiments is the way I work now. And the the reason that I believe that technology is really harming us is, you know, I'll give you some statistics here. So let's say you're having an amazing day at work. You're just crushing it. Like everything is, everything is going in place. You know, you're getting a ton of stuff done. All your projects, projects are just lining up. It's an amazing day. That sense of everything just, be, you know, being in alignment is called flow. And at work, when we're in flow, we are up to 500% more productive than when we're not in flow. And so what that means is if you or someone else can get into flow for just two hours a day and stay there, you can get more done in two hours than an entire day. Amazing, right? Well, here's the problem. When you're in flow and you're interrupted, it takes an average of 23 minutes to get back into flow. And so what's happening is the average person checks their Slack and email once every six minutes and gets a smartphone notification once every 15 minutes. And so you're doing the math and you're saying, well, if no one is ever in flow, which is exactly right. And so none of us are ever getting as much high quality work done as we could because we're constantly distracted all the time. And each one of those little distractions, the email checking, the smartphone notification, the random uh, Slack message from your coworker, when you add up all those interruptions and all the time that they take away from you, it is it could literally be more than half of your workday, more than half in some cases. And so I, I started, um, you know, blocking time on my calendar, eliminating distractions, having three hours of focus time per day, and then you know maybe some meetings in the afternoon. And the amount of things that I've been able to accomplish during that time is insane. It is exponentially more than I accomplished before, yet I'm working less time. And so I, what I want to do is share this methodology and share th this information with people. And that's why I know that I can get companies to a four-day work week. I just have to help you be 20% more productive. Uh, and as an example, one of the women uh, that I work with, who is one of my clients, 
she's a super busy politician, right? So like she's just running around doing all kinds of crazy stuff, fundraiser this, all kinds of crazy things. I worked with her. So she filled up my initial client survey. I worked with her for two hours. She accepted every one of my recommenda recommendations. What we found is that we measured her screen time and she saved over 40 hours per week of screen time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny that you mentioned that about politicians because we all see them now doing this all the time. Oh, for even sure. when they're walking, they're just like the rest of us. But yeah, forty so, hours, forty hours, right? And and so I literally saved her a work week of time with two hours of suggestions or two hours of working with me, right? And so it's it doesn't have to be hard. It just takes some awareness, and that's why you know that you know I I almost view my company as an education company, right? Like I'm here to uh, bring awareness to things about how you're using technology that you might not have seen before, and with that awareness, then you can decide if you want to change your behavior or not. The Cult Worthy Podcast. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you week by week through a bevy of cult favorites, obscure cinema, and hidden gems. Listen to us on your favorite platforms or follow us on thecultworthy.com. The Cult Worthy Podcast. You know, it, it, your, your whole um, approach in your conversation reminds me that to remind people that the eight-hour workday was actually a compromise. If you look at history... The only reason why we ended up with eight hour workdays is because of, you know, there was a time before we had labor laws and, uh, and this was mainly during the, uh, you know, the manufacturing industrial boom where people were just expected to work around the clock. And by the time we got labor laws, you know, we whittled down through negotiation to eight hours. But considering what you're talking about, a lot of times you don't need that eight hours. I have, I know, I have friends who will joke about this. More than half of their day at work, they're not doing anything. And yet their employer is paying them. And like you're saying, you, you just need four hours maybe. I mean, so it's, yeah, totally what you said, Leo, totally resonates. And I have a couple other statistics for you that might be interesting. So, um, you know, there's these studies that 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 psychologists have done, and the mo the maximum amount of truly intense, um, you know, deep work that you can do in a day is four hours, unless you you know you know take some crazy medication or you're like super, you have like an incredible capacity to fun uh, to focus and function, or you've been but slacking all week and now you're catching back up, <laughs> <laughs> right? Or that, right? <laughs> But for most people, four hours is the limit per day, right? So, you know, that to me says something. But here's the other thing, right, is the five-day work week was something that started in 1926 by Henry Ford, nearly a century ago. And so think about all the things that have changed over the last century, right? Like, in, in you know, the world is doesn't even resemble 1926 but, but any stretch of the imagination and again yet, that was a compromise he yes, only implemented yes. that because the the employees you know there were strikes and unions were being formed the five-day work week was a compromise right so. <laughs> yeah and 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 so you know it's it's 
it's kind of crazy to me to think that here's this tradition that we've just kind of blindly followed for about a century, yet we're not rethinking that. Like, why aren't we rethinking that? We should, especially with how th fast things change today, we should be really rethinking things every couple of years at most. And this is something that's a century old that we're, you know, now just starting to reconsider. And that's like, that's exciting to me and interesting that I can show, you know, help people think a little bit differently about the entire concept of work. That's amazing. And we need more people like you because, yeah, I agree with you 100%. And that echoes through a lot of things. You know, we, we get stuck in a, well, this is how we've always done it. And then we just don't think to change. And again, you know, the five-hour work week, the 40-hour work week, that was a compromise. That was something, like you said, over a century ago. Why are we still doing it when... I don't work in a Ford plant, do you? I don't make cars. <laughs> so why why do I have to have this five day work week? No, it just doesn't make, you know, it doesn't really make sense. And I, I think it's interesting that uh, you know, I would have thought that when I would talk about this concept with people, the four day work week, that and when and when I say four days, by the way, just to clarify for the listeners, I'm I do mean four eight hour days, not four ten hour days. So everyone is truly getting one day of time back. And you would think that you would think that this would be like universally accepted and wanted. And I'm, I'm a little surprised to be totally honest that I, I think what it, what it is is people are still kind of skeptical, right? They're like, I don't even know how you could do that. Oh, or I'm I don't skeptical. even think that that's, that's why possible. I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I can talk about the two point, the main points of skepticism and why, you know, I, I you know, what I think about them. So the, the first one is something like this. People will say, well, I don't understand how my company could work. You know, each employee could work four days, but my clients are still open and working five days a week. I'm like, okay, totally valid. And, you know, the, the, the solution to that is relatively simple. Let's say, for instance, you have a team of 10 people at your company and the entire team of 10 does the same thing. Well, what you could do is, you know, create some schedules uh, like team groups or teams. Team one works, uh, that's five people that works Monday through Thursday. Team two works Tuesday through Friday. And so then you have each person working four days a week. You still have five days of client coverage. Everything works well, right? So that's that's certainly you know an option for that, and again, I I think there's a lot of other creative solutions to that problem that for sure you know can work out pretty easily. I think the bigger one though is kind of like what everyone like you were saying, what everyone is wondering is, well, how on earth could I get four days of work done, uh, five days of work done in four days, right? And so if you again some more statistics because I love data, uh, the average white collar worker sends and receives 126 emails per day. And so if it takes you two minutes per email, that's four hours of your day right there. Let's tack on two hours of meetings for the average person. And so right there, you're at six hours of your day. That's like background busy work BS that doesn't, I'm not saying you could completely eliminate it, but it doesn't really, that's not your job. Your job isn't necessarily to answer emails and be in meetings. Your job is to do the activities of your job. But you know, based on the numbers that I was just giving the listeners, the average person really only has about two hours per day to actually do their job, um, you know, because there's all this other BS to do. And so a lot of the strategy with humans first is to not completely eliminate, but greatly reduce the BS. Let's send less emails. Let's send less Slack messages. Let's be in less meetings. Let's have more time to focus and do the work that we're supposed to do and then go home early one day a week or, you know, go home so that we can be with our family and or travel or exercise or do the things in life that you love one day a week. 
it's all possible if you uh, are just open-minded. And I know pretty much everyone listening loves the whole less meetings comment. <laughs> I would hope. <laughs> Most people don't like meetings. And I do believe that there is a lot to be said with, you know, personal contentment often bleeds into productivity too. You know, if you, the best way to have the most productive employees is to have content employees. Yeah. So interestingly, not too long ago, a study came out. It was a study of a million people. It was from the military mm -hmm. and what they, so like, you know, insane, like I've never heard of a study of a million people, but this was incredible. Uh, I believe it was run by Martin Seligman. He's the founder of positive psychology. And what he found is that uh, your, uh, the amount of happiness that you have as a person was directly correlated with the amount of success you have in your job. So a million person study backed up exactly what you just said. If I make you happy as a human, you do a better job for me. Everyone wins. Like that's what I love about this concept is everyone can win. The per the employee gets more time off of work. The employer, and I didn't tell you this yet, but there was a study done that um, profit per employee from a, from a 240 person financial services firm increased 14 and a half percent after his transition to a four day work week. Wow. So let me get this straight. We have more time for the employees. Profit per employee goes up. That's a huge benefit for the for the owner. The the quality of the work goes up. Better for the client. This is a win for everyone. And I don't understand why no one, you know, not everyone is adopting this. Maybe they just don't know. I think it's like remote work was 10 years ago where, you know, it sounds interesting. 10 years ago, remote work sounded interesting. It was possible, but not very mainstream. And then COVID kind of, just, you know, accelerated all that. <laughs> and what I think is going to happen is in the next 10 to 15, like in 15 years, let's say, I think a four day work week will be standard for a lot of companies. But in the meantime, Right now, less than 1% of US companies offer a four-day work week. And so imagine how incredible of a recruiting and retention tool it is when you offer this most insane employee benefit that less than 1% of US companies offer. You'll be able to hire basically anyone you want because this is something that everyone wants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you've been a busy man, Rob. Over 100 books, 2,000 articles and studies and over 43 notebooks. That's a lot. Um, what, I mean, you've already broken down a lot of things. What are some, some specific takeaways that you would point out from all of those things that you've written and contributed to that you think would be beneficial? Oh man. Um, so if I could summarize those hundred books and 2000 articles and studies, in a couple sentences, which is, you know, obviously not really fair, but still, I'm just trying to get the main point across. It would be this. I believe that technology is simultaneously increasing our day-to-day -day and sometimes minute-to-minute -minute stress, while at the same time degrading our ability to deal with that stress by breaking down and um, degrading relationships, communities, and families. And so you have two you know, two portions of an equation that are both going in the wrong direction, more stress, worse or less social support. That is why I believe we have this mental health crisis today. I really think that this is the, 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 the root cause of not all of it, of course, but a lot of it. And so if you can start to pay attention to when you feel stressed out related to your technology use and change that, 
that could literally change basically almost every part of your life. Because when we're stressed out, there's an entire cascade of things that happen that isn't helpful for you or the people that are around you. And when you're in a, you know, in a positive emotional state, when you're not stressed out, you are more generous, you're more empathetic, you want to connect with people, you're obviously happier. I mean, and so I'm, you know, my goal with this company is to tip the balance toward everyone being in this positive emotional state and not being so much in a negative emotional state. I'm speechless. That <laughs> couldn't agree more and pretty much left me speechless with that. Because um, like I said early on, yeah, sometimes I wonder, should we have done all of this? You know, we got all these nice tools and pieces of software and gadgets, but now look where it's leading us. And I, you know, I have to agree with you. I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding, like they like to say. We see the the mental health issues and we see, you know, every time they trace back, well, what led this person to this point? There's technology and like you said, a lot of social media riddled all through it. This uh, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out plays a big part in it. And yeah, we've got to curb that. And, you know, I like to try to end on a positive spin. I, I like yeah. to think, because I personally hear it in my personal life, that there's another, yet another generation who's coming up that they really see no point in social media. For example, like mm. I mentioned my son, he's 16. He thinks it's stupid. He doesn't understand why everyone's always looking at their phone on social media. You know, what's what's mm. the point of that? So, you know, I'm hopeful that that's going to become more of the norm. You yeah. know, and I, I don't like to, you know, I don't like to say everything's bad. What the only problem is we've just done it to excess. And that's true of anything, you know, food isn't bad, but you can do it to excess and that can make it bad. So yeah. I, I would like to think that hopefully we have another generation of humans, humans first mm -hmm. coming up who will get away from all of that because, you know, too much of it isn't healthy at all. Yeah, I, I really, you know, that definitely resonates with me, Leo. And the way I describe, you know, or I guess the framework that I use to think about technology is this. I think technology, like a lot of things, is a tool. And so tools can be used for good things or bad things. For instance, if I have a hatchet, I can cut down a tree and start a fire that could save my life in the wilderness, or I could chop your head off. Yeah, or you could be in a horror movie, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And so the, the hatchet itself isn't bad. It's how I use it that is not, you know, that could be detrimental or good, right? Right. And so my the whole you know my whole thought process here is i want to show people how they can use technology for good in their life and for things that will lift them up put them in a positive state allow them to truly connect with others in real life and minimize the things that may not be serving them well absolutely couldn't agree more couldn't agree more and i think i'm going to start down that mission i try you know i try to tell people let's bring the social back in social media because mm -hmm. all this dependence on I never looked for social, looked to social media for news, but apparently that's the thing that people do. I'm like, why? It's social media. We're supposed to just be on there sharing pictures and goofing off, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I try to, I try what I can, but I love your approach. I love the work that you're doing. And I think it's very beneficial to society. And I do believe that more people should get on board with that train of thought. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Leo. And, you know, it's it's been a long journey for me. There was a, many times when I wanted to quit or I just, 
you know, it was really difficult and it's hard to get people to understand kind of what I'm doing. But, uh, you know, it's just something that I, I deeply believe that I'm, I was put here on this earth to help humanity with this. And, you know, it's something that's going to be very motivating me for, for, for me for a long time. And, um, you said that you wanted to end on a positive note. And I, I have a thought that I just wanted to share with the listeners because, you know, my wife and I recently got married and we put this in our toast for our guests because we thought it was so important. The amount of love, success, and happiness in this world are infinite. And so what that means is that the amount of love, success, and happiness I experience and I have doesn't take those things away from you or how much you could have. And so imagine how much love, success, and happiness we could all have together if we all put humans first. Absolutely. I love that. Speaking of human fir humans first, can you tell everyone where they can find you and how they can connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing that I'd like to offer, off, uh, offer the listeners is a free 30-minute consultation with me. It's a phone call, um, not not uh, text messaging back and forth. <laughs> and uh, the way that you can the way that you can redeem this uh, consultation with me is to just give me uh, shoot me an email. My email is rob r o b at humansfirst.us. Again, that's rob at humansfirst.us. All you need to do is just mention the subject line that. Uh, hey, I listened to you on the Voluntary Input Podcast, and I want to redeem my that 30-minute call, and I'm happy to set something up with you and chat with you about your technology mindfulness. Absolutely. That's great. And we'll include all that in the show notes so that, you know, at the end of the show, because sometimes people listen while they're driving, and we don't want them trying to write stuff down while they're driving. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Absolutely it'll be in not. the show notes. Rob, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight. Like I said, I... I agree with so much of what you said, especially we, we really do need to get back into human connection and into community because I agree with you, you know, just astronomically, that's really what's feeding into the mental health breakdown that we see is people aren't connecting with people anymore. Texting is not connecting. Mm, I like that. Social media is not connecting. It's a piece of it. It's not all of it. We need to get away from acting like, well, I am interacting with people. I talk to them on Twitter. No, <laughs> there's more beyond that. <laughs> totally agree. All right, Rob, you're welcome back anytime. Anytime you want to come back on and share some more, you're more than welcome. Well, thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate everything today and I uh, hope that this was helpful for the listeners. All righty. And as always, if you want to know more about Voluntary Input, just go to voluntaryinput.com. There you can find all the ways you can listen to the show. You can listen there as well. And if you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, just select contact us. We'd love to hear from you. And better yet, if you'd like to be a guest on the show while you're at voluntaryinput.com, just select register as a guest. We're always looking for great guests like you. Rob, thank you for your time. I don't want to take up too much more of your evening and enjoy the rest of it. Thank you so much, Leo. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
Do you sometimes find yourself scrolling through the internet looking for articles to read only to find that you can't read through them all because you have other things going on? What if someone could read them to you while you tackle other tasks? Well, let me tell you about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. Simply put, the entire internet becomes listenable all in one place. Browse articles from topics you choose and you can follow any topic as specific as you'd like. From sports to science to Bitcoin, it will find you the latest articles and read them to you aloud. And guess what? They have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 countries. And yes, this podcast, Voluntary Input, is there too. Download and use Newsly for free now. Follow the Newsly link and use the promo code in the show notes of this episode and receive a one month free premium subscription. So again, if you ever find yourself scrolling through daily articles, stop scrolling and start listening. Follow the Newsly link and use the promo code in the show notes of this episode and receive a one month free premium subscription.